0: I will stay close to the microphone. All right,
1: stay close to is the that... microphone. And then I want you to just completely relax and forget that the microphone is there, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do no, my best. I know. No, so so um no, I was I was saying we have a luxury here. This is not a live interview, we get to have a real conversation. And I feel like what we're you know, your subject matter is so large and you have so many stories and I'm not exactly sure exactly which direction we'll go with this. So, let's just let's just right. see what happens. Okay? But Sounds you know good. what I'm very curious about and I'd like to hear first is how you got into all of this and a little something about your background that you brought to to this field of study, this this um these communities that you found yourself so um so involved
0: with involved in. Yeah. Uh, The route was somewhat circuitous. Um, I uh, grew up in the South, in the southeastern United States, and sort of developed an interest very young in the role that churches played in um, social movements, social activism. I think that's easy to do when you're surrounded by it in, in the history of the South. And I went to undergraduate school looking to kind of asked some questions about that and found myself where many people find themselves looking at the history of African American churches. Uh but um I found as I was moving toward thinking about graduate work that at this time the early 1990s, mid 1990s recently, uh there was a, a a new develop there were many new developments happening in the area of vast numbers of immigrants coming into the south that had not historically been here. Yeah, especially and especially as South started, I think. Excuse me? Especially in the Southeast. That's right. Yeah. Yes. The mm-hmm. Southeast has um, had the fastest growing immigrant population for yeah. quite a few years now. And it's it's something that not many people have attended to because we tend to think of immigration as a phenomenon that happens in places like New York and Houston and Los right. Angeles. Right. And I so I took the same sorts of questions I had been asking and started to ask them about um, religious groups that were working with immigrants and churches where immigrants worshipped. And doing that. Um, inevitably led me as a careful observer to start to think about the ways that if I only focused my attention on these churches as locally boundaried places where um, uh, immigrants worshipped, I couldn't make clear sense of what was happening because there was so much Connection to place of origin, um, transnational connection across national borders, mm. and that this phenomenon was very much tied in with um, the g- globalization processes, larger processes of globalization. So, um, really, it was the subject area um, of interest that moved me into the into the research on globalization.
1: Did you what what made you start thinking, start seeing what you were thinking about what you were seeing there as? Um, in the context of globalization,
0: mhm well historically, um when I started reading about immigration and how to understand um immigration and simply questions like why do people migrate um the the materials that I was reading were not giving a real clear picture um, or weren't clearly able to explain what I was seeing mm-hmm. um and and that was uh, this idea that sort of there are pushes from the sending country poverty for example and pulls from the receiving country the possibility of jobs but there wasn't an understanding of the linkage the connection so we have this we have um i think we carry with us still an idea that immigrants uproot themselves from their home and they come to the United States and they reroot in the United States mm-hmm. um the sort of 19th century Irish immigrant sells the farm to come to the United States, right. and in fact, many of the immigrants that I was getting to know um, when I was spending time in uh, immigrant churches were Latin American immigrants who came to work in the United States so that they could earn the money they needed to buy the farm in back <laughs> home um, right. <laughs> in Latin America. Uh-huh. And it really just really challenged how we how we have historically thought about immigration, mm-hmm. and. I wanted to be able to understand that better. And so we needed to have a a better theory of linkages of the relationship between host and home and not this idea that people break their ties and reestablish ties in the United States. Mm
1: -hmm. Did you have any experience in um, Hispanic cultures or languages or anything? Is that just, did you, did you gravitate towards those communities because of where
0: you were? Um, Yeah. No, I did not. I I began learning Spanish as an adult. Um, I, um, of course, like many Americans, um, I or even people from the United States of America, I have um, a history of migration in my own family, but European migration. And um, but I I was in Florida, and and um, particularly in the part of Florida that I went, I began graduate school was a place where um, there was a strong program in Latin American studies that could allow me to start to think about and enter into Hispanic cultures. Okay. So yeah, it's a lot of it's been very new for me.
1: Hmm. Um, so this is obviously a complicated question with lots, with many answers, but if I just ask you to, you know, when you think about religion and religion's place in globalization and immigration, um, Mm -hmm. you know, where do you begin to describe that? Yes, that is a very complicated question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Where would you start? Just given all you uh, know and all you're working in and that you see.
0: Okay. Well, um, to start, I think to start, I think it's important to have an understanding of, um, globalization that is as sort of complex and nuanced as possible. Um, I, sometimes when I teach about globalization, I, I use an advertisement that we see on, or a few years back we were seeing often on billboards around Atlanta where I live. Um, and the advertisement was, um, a clear white large billboard with a teeny tiny globe in the center of the billboard. And, uh, one of one of the images had written underneath it, get to know your neighbors, and another one had underneath it, um, now available in extra small. And so uh, what it was trying to promote was an image of the world having shrunk, huh. um, and that now people halfway across the world were our neighbors. And in fact, globalization can be described clearly as um, the compression of time and space. So what happens when this time-space compression occurs is that um our, on on a range of levels from the level of individual faith belief and practice to the level of religious institutions uh we become um exposed to and come into contact with uh religious traditions and religious practices and religious institutions that um may not um, in prior decades have been Um, available to us and how people begin to make sense of that and also begin to make sense of the processes like migration, um, international migration. So for instance, our neighbors um, are not only halfway across the world, but they're migrating to be, in fact, literally our neighbors. And um, so if we think about um, globalization as um, one way to talk about this is that it's the kind of a proliferation of borders, of border zones where people and practices come into contact with each other um, that may not have previously been in contact, religion plays a crucial role in helping people to make sense of the new experiences that they're having, the new encounters that they're having, and also in, um, in this proliferation of borders, in creating this proliferation and you know that's a, it's quite a different image
1: because i i do think we tend to think of globalization in some sense or at least as having the potential for erasing borders right, right. For, for
0: things becoming more borderless right um yeah yeah i think that uh, there is some danger to that um <laughs> in some sense um that that does happen and there are certainly um in the area of um, values and ideals. There are some um, religious institutions which have been very involved in in promoting ideas of universal values um, of, of a borderless world where we all share values, for instance, human rights and human dignity. Mm-hmm. The Global Catholic Church has been, and, and the uh, Pope John Paul II in particular, um, were vocally um, supportive of that. But um, globalization is not... Exclusively a process of universalizing or of erasing borders. Nor is it a process exclusively of sort of tribalism, which Mm -hmm. is another way that people think about what happens when um, uh, practices and people and um, worldviews that were prior that were previously um, distinct and far from one another physically come into contact. Oftentimes, we think it's a pulling away, a tribalization, sort Mm -hmm. of a, um, a local. Um, it's what happens when it goes and, wrong yeah that's right mm-hmm. and and that and we find that it's much more complex than that <laughs> so you um you know you describe and I, I mean I'd like to hear
1: I'd like I'd like you to tell some of the, the stories as we talk because you you have so many wonderful stories in your writing and I mean you know Thank one you. one thing that struck me was you talked about an early research project you did and you're your topic, I believe this was in Atlanta, and your topic was to figure out how churches respond to local crisis. Mm-hmm, um, that's right. <laughs> and you started to realize, I mean, this echoes what you said a minute ago, that these people, that, that people in Hispanic churches, I mean, that they considered an earthquake in El Salvador or a mudslide in Venezuela to be the local crises to which their church in Atlanta um,
0: would be responding. Right. So, um, it, it really, in a sense, the um, locality and place, um, relevant place and locality, have sort of been pulled apart in these um, communities and these churches. So that um, when we ask people to describe their community, their mm-hmm. local community, they could certainly describe it well. Now, what were you doing? You tell me what you were. You were in uh, the, role the research of a project. It's a very mm-hmm. interesting project um, mm-hmm. that looks at how. Um, how congregations respond to crisis in their communities. Mm-hmm. And we sort of tried to keep that, um, the idea of community open to a certain degree, but we, we researched the locality, the specific locality, and the sort of uh, as um, the community, as the place that we would The town um, or seek, the city that they would. Right, mm-hmm. the town or the city, yeah. And then what so, was your
1: role? Were you just going and asking questions in congregations? Mm-hmm. That well, had been I, spent, it
0: was, I, I was chosen to research in two congregations okay. that were immigrant congregations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a town called Doraville, which is a, a basically a suburb of Atlanta, has had a just explosion of Latino population from two you know, percent to forty-five percent um, between 1980 and 2000. Mm. And um, I, I was the researcher in, in these immigrant congregations, and there was also a researcher in uh, African American middle-class African American congregations, and one in exurban um, congregations, mm. so congregations out the way outside of the city, mm-hmm. primarily white and middle-class. Uh, so it was just interesting because the um, the folks doing the research in the in the other two congregations got relatively straightforward answers when we asked, um, tell me about crises that have happened in your community and how you've responded. Answers like local zoning issues or the youth in the community, you know, the local youth don't have anywhere to go after school. And I would ask the very same question in the very same way to um, uh, Latino immigrants and I would hear responses, you know, we've, oh, we've, our church has really come together and responded so well when there was an earthquake in El Salvador or a mudslide Mm -hmm. in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing that we found was that, um, really, so the, the idea of the relevant, the relevant, um, source of, of moral action or of social action, um, I'm I'm sorry, the relevant, um, object of it, the place that they would take that action, uh, it really extended out along the specific networks that were developed in that church between immigrants and their places of origin. So it wasn't this sort of um, generalized global sense of, you know, we were in all part of a global civil society. You know, we're global citizens. In India. That, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it, it wasn't that idea. It was a very specific very specific to the networks that existed within those churches and um, and so but then, of course, you know Mexicans were working with Salvadorians and Venezuelans to respond to a crisis in El Salvador, um, so they were all working together, but using the specific ties, the specific links that they had to their um, to specific places of origin and of course, um, this was a somewhat of a surprise to us, so we had to start to think about. What do we what do we mean by community? We had to mm-hmm. think about how to redefine community, um, mm-hmm. and that wasn't initially the project. The project was to think about crisis, and so we had to think about crisis and community and what those two mean and how to define them in a, a place like uh, metropolitan Atlanta, which is just shot through with these processes of globalization.
1: Were they were the people you interviewed? I mean, were they um, not interested in in crises? that were in a literal sense local? I mean, you know, whether the kids had places to play after school? um, No, they
0: were in fact very interested. (laughs) (laughs) And of course there were many crises, um, particularly the the churches that I'm talking about, I should make clear, um, Mm -hmm. were uh, filled with very recent immigrants and primarily undocumented immigrants to the United States. So uh, there were a range of um, issues that did affect their everyday lives profoundly. um, um, Discrimination issues, issues of school and Um, and and their children and drugs and the same kinds of issues we were hearing about in the other areas. And one thing of concern about um, the fact that the crisis response um, – Geared toward places like El Salvador and Venezuela was in a sense better organized than crisis response to local um issues hmm. is that um because these are largely undocumented immigrants, they have um less in a sense less networks and less opportunities to participate in um in social action in the place in which they live, so right. sometimes uh, less we clout, can think about really. these yeah mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. and uh and the the networks and ties that they maintain back to their place of origin are in some ways stronger than the networks and ties that they have in their place of residence in you know in
1: So so what you you use the word transnationalism and you say that this is kind of a it, it seems to me that what you're describing is a transformation of I mean that these terms Im, immigrant <laughs> with the start of beginning mm-hmm. with an i and emigrant you know don't make as much sense it's almost as though people are at home in several
0: places um mm-hmm, that's right yeah i mean yeah i i th- i think um it's really amazing <laughs> to me as i spend time with uh i i mostly spend time with mexican um immigrants uh, to atlanta who in fact again because they're largely undocumented immigrants traveling back and forth is quite difficult um it's expensive and it's very dangerous um uh uh, to do so, many of these folks haven't physically traveled uh, back to their place of origin in years, but the just profoundly tight links maintained between a small town or village in um, central Mexico and a and the town of Doraville, you know, the sub a suburb of Atlanta are really astounding to me. And as I traveled uh, doing research between the two places, I became in many ways embedded in these these networks, in these linkages. I was asked to carry things across the border for people. Always coming back from Mexico, it's cheeses and um, tortillas, which are so much better when they're made by hand and they're hard to find in Atlanta, Mm. things like that. And always um, going down, I would take photographs and images. And once I took the daughter of a friend of mine, who of course was a citizen of the United States, uh, because she was born here in the United States, but my friend was an undocumented immigrant, and she wanted her daughter to meet her parents, so her the the child's grandparents. So uh, it's it's interesting as you do this research, you also become embedded in these in these networks and realize how how much they impact everyday life um, of of immigrants and of the people who who stay in Mexico. And that's another important thing about transnational migration to think about and particularly how it interacts with, um, with religious life is that the people who travel and the people who stay put are impacted. So as immigrants come to the United States and, and begin to practice religion in ways that are, um, are new for, uh, the particular churches that they're in or the religious bodies that they're in, uh, they change those religious bodies and they change, um, religious life for people who have been here for quite a while as well. Yeah. Just a second.
1: Okay. Um, so they're wondering if, can you take a drink of water? Yes. You sound good to me, but my producer who has very sharp ears thinks you need a drink of water. And I'm sure he knows. <coughs> so, okay. Um, yeah, I want to kind of, I want to stick with this. With this idea of of you know what all of this has to do with religion or how how religion manifests itself in this dynamic and and what role mm-hmm. it plays, um, you okay. you know you do it, it it is a really amazing story that you tell about these two places this you know this suburb of Atlanta and a and a town in Mexico and how in fact through these human beings. Um, these two places, in fact, are in relationship in a way that probably the, the uh,
0: inhabitants of neither place fully grasps. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say from the perspective of the um, small town in Mexico, mm-hmm. everyone in that town grasps it. Right, especially <laughs> uh, right. on so uh, the American side that we don't grasp That's right, uh-huh. yeah. It, it has just so profoundly changed the way that life, uh, life has lived there and the economic life of people there. Mm-hmm. But also the religious life, and I'll give you a few examples, again, from the perspective of Of this town in Mexico. Um, One of the things that uh, small towns uh, in Mexico historically have done um, that is a tradition is to celebrate the um, feast day of the patron saint of the town. So one of the towns that I have spent time in is um, uh, called San Juan D'Axti. San Juan is the the patron. And each June uh, they have a big uh, feast day celebration. It's a um, religious, it's a mass, uh, as well as a sort of Um, fair and a a wide range of practices religious practices that happen around that and uh, what has happened in this town and throughout uh, Mexico uh, as a result of migration is that Uh, First of all, immigrants um, who are living in the United States, if possible, always want to return home for the feast day celebration. So you find that the population of these towns swells during the feast day celebration. Mm. But even those who don't return home um, participate in it by sending money back to support the... um, uh, support the activities to get the mariachi band and to um, decorate the church and to be involved in in that way, and so these celebrations have become somewhat paradoxically as the populations of the towns shrink because people have migrated. The celebrations become increasingly um, elaborate and um, and again m- migrants return home for these celebrations, and they become a really important way for them to to maintain connection to their place of origin. Um, and the feast day celebrations, although it may seem just to be a, a party, uh, <laughs> they they have they are in a sense uh, ways in which um, immigrants can make sense of um, of home and what it means. And I think one of the things about religion that's important is that um, uh, religion helps us all to. Um, Sort of map worlds of meaning and to inhabit those worlds of meaning, well, and so me, as what people migrate
1: say say some more about that uh,
0: well um, i think I think that um, religion helps us to make sense of who we are, our place in the world, mm-hmm. and how what how our world is constituted and it helps um, so for immigrants, for example, when they travel from a place where um, a town that is steeped in um, Catholic tradition and Catholic ritual to a place um, in which uh, none of that is is terribly evident um, in everyday life, and they have to seek out a place to participate in those things and practice those things, Um, uh, their religious life and their religious practice becomes um, somewhat more central in their lives um, and uh, more important as a way for them to... um, to um, maintain connection um, to home and also um, uh, to uh, the people who matter to them and also to their God and the way that they understand God. So people often say that immigrants become more religious. I'm not sure if that's the case, but they certainly, there's good evidence that many immigrants become more um, practicing Mm-hmm. Uh, of their religion uh, when they after they migrate.
1: And I mean I think it's an it's an interesting thing to say because it it cuts against the grain of assumptions people were making sociologists were making 20 30 years ago that as the world grew more connected and more plural and as human beings lived in more plural pluralistic secular societies religion would become less important to people,
0: right? Right, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we now have lots of evidence to challenge um, what is often referred to as secularization theory, um, sort of a body of theories that that uh, made us to understand that uh, with increasing modernization would also becoming would also come a decreased relevance of religion uh, in the modern world. And we find that, um, in fact, in many ways, uh, this is not not happening. Uh, secularization. Theories of that secularization are very complex, but but uh, one thing that's that kind of cuts across them is um, a, an understanding that the um, that the sphe- that the relevance of religion in in public life um, uh, would become uh, would decrease. And mm-hmm. again, I think uh, migration is really challenging this, um, and processes of globalization are challenging this. Um, oftentimes. For instance, for migrants who come to a place where there, there are very few places for them even to physically gather, um, religious spaces become public spaces. They become the gathering places um, uh, for migrants and places for them to organize and um, to engage in what we consider, what we typically consider um, uh, public non-religious mm. um, uh, pl- political life. Um, so even the spaces of religion become important in that way.
1: And you kind of are telling in your new book. You're kind of telling I don't know a tale of two churches, two immigrant mm-hmm. churches in Doraville, um, in this suburb of Atlanta. Did you did you experience them in that way? Did you did they feel like public spaces to you in a way that's different from you know, church, non-immigrant churches that you'd known?
0: Yes, uh, one of them in particular. Uh, the interesting thing about these two churches is they. they um they they helped because they were very distinct kinds of places they each one helped me to see more clearly um some of the features of the other that were um, significant and one of the churches was a huge uh catholic mission church um and it i believe it's the largest um spanish speaking religious congregation in the southeast um mm. and this church it would be hard to underestimate to what degree this church became the town square of Doraville for Latinos. It became the gathering place for such a broad range of activities. And again, I believe that this is because um, Doraville, the city of Doraville was not um, terribly welcoming to new immigrants, did not open uh, open doors and open um, spaces uh, to new immigrants um, to the degree that um, uh, so, so to and because of that, they really had to carve out a space, and churches became the spaces that were carved out um, to engage in collective life together so that so many of the things that when I was in Mexico were happening in the town square uh, were had been transposed in, in the United States and these um, receiving communities to the church. The church was not only a safe haven, but also a place to get together and you know, have parties and celebrate um uh, all sorts of non-religious um, events, as well as to celebrate many of the religious activities that would otherwise happen in public spaces in town squares in, in Mexico.
1: Talk to me about the difference between these two churches, um, which, as you describe it, began with the the welcome that people received <laughs> every Sunday <laughs> right. morning.
0: Right. Um, let's see. One of the churches uh, was a very small church, um, a Lutheran church that was doing um, outreach to um, Latinos in in Doraville, and the church was. Um, came, I came to understand that the church really worked as a as a family, as an extended family, for um, immigrants who, many of whom were uh, far away from their um, from their actual uh, families, and this church um, always began its services each Sunday with. Um, the pastor standing before the church and saying, welcome to the house of God, uh, as I recall. And the uh, the other church where I did research, the one that I've just described that was more like a town square. It's a large Catholic church. Large Catholic uh, church, Mission. yes. Mm-hmm. Would always say, welcome to our community. Uh, the Catholic Mission of Our Lady of the Americas, and uh, and and the person who said it was always a member of the a, a lay member of the congregation, a volunteer. Mm-hmm. This church had an astounding number of um, volunteers who were actively involved in running the church, um, and and I found that in fact uh, the two churches did um, work very differently in the lives of their members. Uh, one one was more of a a community um a, again a public space or a town um town square, and the other was much more of a family, a small intimate place where you could you could go and you knew who would be sitting next to you in the pews and uh and the latter w- was not able to offer nearly uh, the number of services or activities, but it offered um a sort of intimacy that the um that the large town square was not able to offer mm-hmm.
1: and and how do these these two congregations um reflect for you different roles that religion plays in this new world, this world of globalization and of this transnationalism that you're describing? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, the first congregation, um, uh, the Catholic, the large Catholic mission, plays an important role um, as in becoming um, in the United States, in areas, um, n- new receiving destinations like Atlanta that lack a broad range of organizations um, uh, for uh, immigrants and uh, resources for new immigrants, um, really did become um, an alternative uh, town square, an alternative um, social service provider, and uh, an alternative public space. Where And what I mean by that is a place where immigrants could come together and develop um, discourses um, and develop um, ideas and also develop activities that challenged um, uh, the, the image of them that was being developed um, all around them. So for instance, uh, one of my favorite um, examples of this is uh, the I, I went into the church one Sunday and found that um, just next to the entrance to the sanctuary was a Huge, a uh, life-size papier-mâché statue of Liberty uh, that had a large red question mark painted onto the front of it, um, and they were challenging the idea that um, the, the United States is a place of of liberty and freedom for all, because there was a lar- This is a large body of immigrants who are not um, experiencing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, uh, another another example that I think is helps to clarify the difference between these two churches between this one and the um, the small Lutheran Church was I talk in the book about um uh Halloween uh, the Lutheran Church really um the pastor of the Lutheran Church saw as his responsibility to help um immigrants to become acclimated to their new environment and integrate into it, so Halloween, which is not something that's celebrated um in perhaps in urban areas, but certainly not in most of the places that the immigrants to these churches had come, uh, is not typically celebrated. And the pastor um, introduced them to the practice of Halloween by inviting everyone to a Halloween party at their church. Uh, Now, at this Halloween party, um, what struck me was that um, the uh, children and adults who came dressed up, many of them did not come dressed in sort of the typical sort of pop culture culture, Costumes of the year, which would that year have been something like Harry Potter, uh, but instead uh, some of them came dressed as um, s- um, figures in the uh, sort of folk history of their areas of Mexico. So it was an interesting, what I would consider a hybrid practice—a practice that brought together uh, the, these new um, traditions new to immigrants with um, their long existing traditions and sort of created new hybrids. And so. They maintained their connection to their place of origin, and they and that allowed them to bring to kind of bring a new vigor into Halloween. You know, it's not fifty Harry Potters. There were a whole <laughs> range of, of, um, of, of things happening there. And then uh, at the other church, um, Halloween was not uh, celebrated, and I think that was I know that that was an explicit decision on the part of the leadership at that church. Um, they did um, celebrate the Day of the Dead with an altar. The Day of the Dead is a and. Um, um, historically celebrated in the communities from which most of the immigrants had come. And they they set up a large altar dedicated, I, I believe the altar had written under it, this altar is dedicated to our martyrs. The people who uh, those who fought for our people or for justice for our people and there were um, images of um, Oscar Romero um, the Archbishop of El Salvador um, who was martyred Um, and and also Martin Luther King Uh, so again a sort of hybrid um, connecting them to their places of origin and to the traditions of and and work of justice that was happening in their places of origin and also bringing in um, uh, particularly strong images of of um, justice traditions in the United States, and I, I think that you found
1: that that, that this kind of um, phenomenon of, of hybrid religion is quite common, isn't it? In this this uh, mobile <laughs> yes, world of that's the right. present,
0: and again, this is important because because often we think of globalization as either erasure of boundaries, universalization, mm-hmm. or um, the sort of refortification of boundaries. Um, Turning into uh, one 's traditions and to one 's community and sort of building bound um, imporous boundaries mm-hmm. um, or w- w- oftentimes in religious what would be considered fundali- fundamentalisms mm-hmm. so uh this idea that hybridity happens all around us in religious practice and in everyday life uh, and that in that I-, I think in particular in the United states um, in the study of religion in the United States, uh, we often um, overlook how for everyday practitioners of religion uh, for people who are just living their religious everyday lives uh how how easy it is to sort of blend and mix um, without too much difficulty so for instance this this um Lutheran Church, where I did research, the vast majority of the people in the pews of that church were Catholic, continued to identify as Catholic, but they found that this Lutheran Church was a place where they could come together as a family, right. they could engage in more or less the same worship practices. They didn't have too much difficulty with this, uh, which is not what we um, scholars of religion are, are are made to think should happen <laughs> All right. I wonder you know when you talk about religion
1: happening um, as a public space when other kinds of public spaces are denied to people, and when you have, talk about religion as a phenomenon at the sort of in the borders, or uh, that that mm-hmm. becomes more more vital when boundaries are unsettled. I mean, unsettled boundaries are difficult for human beings in, in any context, and mm-hmm. I suppose a cynic might say that, of course, people turn to religion. Um, you know, it's as kind of a crutch. I mean, you know, Marx's opium of the masses right. or something. Right. I mean, that's not what you're describing in your book, but say some more about the real, the content and the and the substance of this mm-hmm. that you experienced.
0: Well, I, I think that um, dealing with unsettled boundaries is uh, for some quite difficult, but then... Um, we also find that that uh, others, as they sort of uh, piece together their religious lives in a world that is offers to them an overabundance of religious meaning, uh they're willing to cross over boundaries and blur boundaries um really with 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 some ease and we found as we were doing the research for globalizing the sacred that um that religion um the role of religion um, in processes of globalization was really threefold, that there was um, uh, the erasure of boundaries, this idea that we need to erase boundaries becomes, um, you know, citizens of a global civil society that we need to share in common core values like um, global human dignity and these kinds of values that religious institutions, in particular, global religious institutions, played an important role in attempting to erase these kinds of boundaries. Uh, but And then there was also this idea of boundary formation and boundary fortification.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the fortification of boundaries um, happened on, from the level of institutions all the way down to the level of individual practice. But again, what, one of the things that was most fascinating to us in the research was um, how um, pervasive uh, the blurring of religious boundaries was, even at the heart of what um, we would expect to be um, uh, the centers of orthodoxy or of boundary formation and so the fortification. Can you
1: tell me a story about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, the best story that I, I have from our research for globalizing the sacred of this is uh, a, a shrine that I did research in at the um, border of the United States and Mexico. Um, the... Um, Shrine was near Brownsville, Texas. uh, It's the San Juan, um, uh, the shrine of Our Lady of San Juan del Valle of the of the Lower Rio Grande Valley, and uh, I met a priest there um, who described to me the shrine is just a fascinating place. I could describe it for hours, (laughs) but uh, but at this point in the shrine's history, um, it has become. a place where uh, the charismatic movement has become particularly um influential, and so uh on Sundays um, the shrine thousands of people pack into the shrine for multiple masses, and the priests um gather with a huge mariachi band that comes from Monterrey, Mexico, each Sunday to, to celebrate Mass. And um, the priests lead a relatively straightforward um, Mass, but then at the end of the Mass, they do a praise and worship time. Um, and the praise and worship time has uh, the mariachi band, again, playing songs that we would not traditionally associate either with mariachi bands or with a Catholic Mass. They're sort of um, uh, more evangelical praise songs. Uh, and uh, one... one day that i was at mass at the shrine um the um I'm, i spoke with the priest after the mass and he told me that um he has um asked the mariachi band to learn how to p- play these praise and worship songs in hebrew so this adds again just another sort of complex mixing and blending of we had and why did you he know. do that <laughs> well uh he the the praise and worship was an important um element for him uh because, again, being in, out, coming out of this charismatic movement, he wanted them to sing praise and worship songs. And I think he wanted a sort of more um, universal or uh, kind of instead of not English, not Spanish, mm-hmm. but a, a language that would sort of transcend those. So he a said, let's do language. Hebrew mm-hmm. praise and worship. And he <laughs> okay. also told me, the same priest told me that, and again, this kind of goes with the idea of this mixing and blending, that he, um, he liked to watch um, religious television and he watched one... Um, a station EWTN, which is a Catholic station, to learn about, you know, to watch documentaries and learn about the history of the Catholic Church and Catholic doctrine. But he also um, often watched um, TBN, which is an evangelical station. He said, I, I believe that TBN is heretical, but they- they've taught me how to preach. Watching TBN mm-hmm. has taught me how to preach. Mm-hmm. So again, he's at the same time that he's trying to create the boundaries around Orthodox, Catholic orthodoxy, he's also willing to sort of move back and forth across them um, to be a better preacher.
1: Mm you know you you tell an interesting story too and this gets at also another side of of this story of globalization in our time of transnationalism which is that mm, different some some of us are moving into this at different paces right i mean the experience of these immigrants in atlanta is not necessarily the experience of the people who were living in the town before they came That's so right. you describe um sitting in the mayor's office in doraville Mm-hmm. and asking mm-hmm. him what were the most important places in his city.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Tell, tell yeah. that story. And, you know, yeah, and this is an important story, too, because I think it, it figures into um, how religion helps us to map our worlds of meaning. You mm-hmm. had asked me about that earlier. Yeah, um, yeah I, I went to ask the mayor. I was doing, at the time, it was the beginning of my research in Dorville, and I was doing a um, a survey of the religious organizations in the area and what that means practically is that I was driving up and down every street in Doraville and finding all of the churches that were there and then I was going in and doing a brief um, interview and discussion with them and so I was learning a lot about the churches um, that existed in Doraville that way and I went in to speak with the mayor and um, I asked the mayor not about churches in particular but what are the most important places in Doraville and um Uh, this being the Southeastern United States, and him, um, I think, in in particular, uh, he responded to me that churches are the most important places in Doraville. And I said, can you name some of the churches? And the first one he named um, was uh, First Presbyterian Church, which I had learned a couple of days prior, I think, that uh, First Presbyterian Church had just closed down uh, to make way for um, a Vietnamese uh, congregation of the Salvation Army. Mm -hmm. And he also named First Baptist Church. um, And First Baptist Church I had just visited, or I later visited, to find that um, there was still um, um, the historically— Uh, The historic congregation at First Baptist, it had shrunk to about 30 or 40 people. But First Baptist also opened its doors each Sunday to six immigrant nesting congregations, which means that Hmm. the space of the church was used each Sunday for six different um, congregations to meet, in this case, um, African and Latin American congregations. Um, And it, it, it was striking because... It, it showed me that the pace of change um was happening so fast in this city that the mayor was either unwilling or unable to uh to make to make sense of it and to to sort of um process it
1: right or I mean, even uh, maybe to see it even, yes that's even, right. even to
0: register yeah. to exactly hmm. and and I think this is um something that is very important about um Immigration to these new destinations in the United States to places that have not historically been um, destinations for immigrants because immigrants are coming into um, local communities that um, are often resistant um, and really don't have ways either to make sense of or to um, uh, to create institutional um, supports for immigrants mm-hmm. and so churches become. Profoundly yeah. important in these areas right. because they're one of the only gathering places and and um, advocates for immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another story about uh, this Dorville area uh, and sort of the the disconnect <laughs> between what was actually happening and what uh, was perceived to be happening by people who were in political leadership and had been in the town for quite for many mm-hmm. many generations uh, was. Um, that uh as the city was as the city of Atlanta was preparing for the Olympics they wanted to sort of do a revitalization of the of the kind of urban corridor that has come to include Doraville um and this area has lo- a, a large number of um of immigrant restaurants and immigrant owned businesses and what they wanted to do was create sort of a walking area where people could come and it would be sort of international Atlanta and there would be housing above and Businesses below, and one of the city commissioners of Doraville said um, in a newspaper interview, um, uh, interview for the newspaper, he said, um, I can't remember exactly the wording, but he said, "That's not what we're about in Doraville. Here, we're basically Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists." And then he said, "If you want immigrants in your area of Atlanta, you're welcome to have them." That I'm, I'm, um, of course, paraphrasing. But again, what struck me about that was that religious identification was crucial in making sense of who they were and what they were about, Uh, but it was also... profoundly disconnected with what was actually happening in their communities at that time. In fact, the very day, I thought it was funny, the very day that he was interviewed was the feast day of the Virgin of Guadalupe, when the streets of Doraville were filled with Mexicans and other Latin Americans in a procession through the streets of Doraville to celebrate the Virgin of Guadalupe. And in a sense, that procession kind of carved out for them a space that was their own on a landscape that was often hostile to them kind of makes you wonder what what we all might be missing <laughs>
1: at any given yeah, moment to right. because because start we're not paying
0: attention <laughs> that's right no that's definitely true i mean you start I, to pay attention
1: i did want to ask you how doing this work um because it's not the world you came from either um right. you know how observing this studying it and also getting to some extent personally and emotionally involved with many people in these congregations you know how it's changed you and what you see in how you define your world and the world in which your children are growing
0: up? Yeah, well, I'm. I, I have been very grateful to have the opportunity um, to become friends um, in a very real sense with um, uh, immigrants from Mexico and other parts of Latin America, and also with people in uh, in Mexico. And they have, in a sense, embraced me. Some of the people that I met initially while doing research. Have embraced me um, and allowed me and my family to participate in all of their um, events—the baptisms and the first communions and the birthday parties—and and it's it's wonderful for me because each time I go to a baptism or a first communion party, I I get taken back to um, the the town that I did my some research in 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 Mexico uh, because first of all there are a lot of people <laughs> from the town who are visiting for mm. that event again there is this physical back and forth for people. Uh, for whom that is possible. Uh, in other words, legal residents of the United States. Uh, um, and also just you know the food and the music, and, and they've really um, invited me to be a part of, of that. Um, it's also, of course, made me, um, I'm Catholic, um, and it's made me um, appreciate the breadth um, of uh, practices that are Catholic religious practices, and to take some of those as my own. Um, and, uh, and it's also made me, of course, um, a real advocate for, for immigrants and want to do whatever I can to um, resist some of the tendencies um, uh, right now in the politics of the United States to, um, to claim that, that uh, undocumented immigrants to the United States are not real participants in our society, in our economic, social, religious um, lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of touching on where we
1: started, um, you talked about how this idea that we have in this country about what immigration looks like, in fact, does not match the reality now. And perhaps especially not with Hispanic immigrants um, Mm -hmm. for reasons that have to do with their particular history. Um, And I think that, you know, it's hard to talk about this, but I think that for a lot of Americans that new model represents a failure or, or something less than this great ideal, you know, that built America of the immigrants who came and made their lives here and then made this country great. Right. I mean, I wonder if you get into that conversation with people in your life,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in your family, or in the, the, the places you started out before you yourself had this involvement and how those conversations go for you now.
0: Right, yeah, Um, the sort of ideal of assimilation that we all come to the United States and assimilate into a cultural melting pot. Now, of course, there is, um, you know, increasingly in the United States— a value that is shared is a value that we might call multiculturalism or pluralism uh, but again it, it is not the same as um, um, an, as the the practices of transnationalism that I'm observing oh, yeah. uh, multiculturalism is kind of this idea that everyone comes to the United States and becomes an active part of life in the United States but they develop sort of a a, a cultural identity that is uh, unique, but also American. Mm-hmm. So they become and still part of the Americans. whole. This whole, right? Mm-hmm. And and um, what I what I say, there there are two things that I think are important um, to say in response to the um, you know the claims that this might be problematic um, because it challenges what America, what the United States has been historically. Um, the first thing is that. Um, for some populations of transnational migrants um, in particular undocumented immigrants uh, they 're not being offered the opportunity to um, participate fully in um, in u uh, s life so um, some uh, there 's some very interesting research being done on how participation in churches helps immigrant groups participate in um, multicultural America or hmm. um, uh, a theorist called Prima Kurian uses a wonderful image. She talks about how um it helps them take their place at the multicultural table um and she works with Hindus um who are oftentimes professional um they're legal immigrants to the United States and they are um going to um temples or various the various religious um, t- to temples and and participating in their temples That has changed a lot um it's changed significantly from what it was um in India. And uh it's it's really they the cre- are
1: participating differently here than they did when they were in India. That- That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. That that More.
0: temples instead of temples being a place um just to go and engage in certain particular religious rituals, temples become much like um the Catholic uh, mission that I was describing, become places um, for a whole range of activities and for a, a large degree of lay participation and lay leadership. Um, they become um, social centers, and they become places where um, uh, children go to the equivalent, more or less, of Sunday school to learn about um, Hindu traditions to learn um, the languages that are um, important from their particular place of origin. And so they really, um, the temples take on a, a wide range of um, responsibilities in a sense, or under their roof happen a wide range of activities that would would not typically happen in a Hindu temple in India. And that by participating in these places, um, immigrants, uh, Hindu immigrants can become Hindu American or Indian American, and it allows them to kind of embrace their identity as um, hyphenated Americans yeah. and in, in that way enter into um, fully as participants as of, uh, of a United States that is multicultural. And um, it's important to highlight that um, this table does not have a seat for everyone and that there are many people for whom um, participating um, in... Uh, in their churches or in their religious bodies um, will allow them to develop an identity a distinct identity, but that they're not being invited to participate fully um, in the united in the united states so that's um you know one concern um, and another is that transnationalism we found that um, among transnationals um, who are able to become legal residents or citizens of the United States that they can they are able also to be fully um, active in the civic and political um, life of the United States and also active in the civic and political life of their place of origin. So it's not a choice between them. That's right. It's not Mm -hmm. an either or. Mm -hmm. And again, I think, um, you know, going back to the, you had said this idea of Blurred boundaries or of um, it has to be either or is something that we we feel a little uncomfortable with blurred boundaries or with the ability to be fully engaged in two places simultaneously, in two nation states simultaneously. But we're finding that many people are doing it and doing it quite well and adeptly and without much um, angst about it. Hmm. And, I mean, certainly churches in this country,
1: and and I think especially in what's called the Bible Belt in this country. I mean, churches are are places of social gathering, I mean, say traditionally in American culture. um, That's not a new role. It's not a new Mm -hmm. role that that one's whole kind of social and civic life, that that all might be wrapped up in a church home. But you're also describing these immigrant churches as Mm, as empowering in a way uh, i mean that that is that is challenging uh, some of the norms and even the the legal restrictions of of mm-hmm. our civic culture and that, i mean that 's a new and kind of uncomfortable role for places of worship, i think, or is it right
0: well, I will say um, on your first point that the research that 's been done on um, religion among immigrants um, has highlighted, uh, that, and again, the example that I just gave of the, of Hindu temples is, is illustrative of this, has highlighted that, um, one of the ways that, um, religious practices of immigrants in a sense conforms to, um, uh, his, the history and traditions of the United States is that it becomes more congregational. And what is meant by that is simply, um, face-to-face religious bodies that people choose to participate in and they become, in a sense, um, um, a a community or Mm -hmm. a gathering of people that is more than dropping in and out or than a parish model, which would be, Simply defined by geographic boundaries, so um, we can think about that as, in, in some sense, conforming to the history and traditions of the United States and the role that religious bodies have played in the United States. But what's interesting to me is that at the same time that they're conforming to those, they're they're bringing with them um, and constantly um, re-nourishing uh, practices and ways of understanding their relationship to to the deity and to the world uh, that come through these transnational networks that come through these very tight linkages to their place of origin. Mm -hmm. So they're both conforming to uh, our standards or our our history of congregationalism and um, in a sense, refurbishing it or um, recreating it to fit their own um, um, uh, history and their own needs in a sense, particularly when, um, immigrants need a place where they can um, organize politically
1: yeah. so they're bringing they're bringing new new energy and and new forms also at the same time that's right mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know i want to see if there are questions behind the glass here i'm going to be quiet for a moment while i'm listening through my headphones okay Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just want to, you know, we talked about how, about what, what these immigrants bring to religious practice here. Mm -hmm. Are there ways in which you see religious practices or sensibility affected also back in the country of origin? Is that something you've looked at? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let me think for a moment of. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Take your time. Um well I I did mention uh one way that religious practice is affected is that um oftentimes um immigrants um because they want for their um the local the religious practices that they kind of identify with home um to be um uh nourished and continued when they're in their place of when okay. they're um, living in the United States, that mm-hmm. they oftentimes um support um, uh, financially, the, um, the kind of almost, um, it almost becomes, in a sense, a, a tourist um, destination—the uh, religious event—so that um, people return home for their uh, feast day celebration or for um, the feast of the Virgin of Guadalupe in their hometown, and they want to make sure that it's done right and that okay. it's done big. And so they have, you know, the mariachi band come, and the, you know, the food is particularly um, good um, because it's supported. Also, um, uh, many of the. Um, d- d- um, for instance, in the town Duxie where I did my research the the church itself, the church on the square um was built with funding from um immigrants living in the United states um the uh, municipality had enough money to put up the four side walls, and that was all um so in a very real sense, religious practice is affected uh by um the immigrants um living in the United States because they give them a place, a space to Um, in which to worship, and they choose uh, what will be in that space, what images of the saints will be in that space, and how it will be arranged. So the
1: traditions Um, back home, in fact, are strengthened by the connection in an interesting way. That's exactly right. (laughs) That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And
0: again, I think that people who who took their religious life and their religious practice for granted um, when they were living in a small town in Mexico— uh, traveling to the United States and having to actively seek um, um, a place uh, you know initially to baptize their child or um, to go to mass and then actively seek uh, the possibility to engage in those religious practices in a sense makes them more um, um, c- committed to uh, perpetuating those mm-hmm. and to um, returning to their place of origin to um, to have those um, be, be continue on. And also, um, uh, I can give you an example, uh, in the United States among Latinos in the United States and also in Latin America, um, uh, the charismatic movement has become, um, uh, very, um, popular in, yeah. uh, Latino Catholic churches. Um, and I, I have, I spoke with a number of, um, Latino charismatics, um, in one of the churches where I did research who were, um, when people from their group from their small charismatic group returned back to Mexico, they helped them to um, establish in their home church um, in Mexico in their home parish a, a charismatic group a um, a charismatic praise and worship service each week and they helped them both with materials um, materials meaning songs and and um ideas for how to do it and also with material money uh um, support And um, so, again, and what's interesting about that is that the uh, the the so the churches in the United States become sort of seed, you know, develop sort of seed churches and back in Latin America. But those materials initially came from um, uh, Latin American, uh, big Latin American uh, groups of charismatics who sent them over to the United States. So they're <laughs> sort of co- going back and forth again with people who are traveling back and forth. Mm. Um, and and that really uh, will, if a charismatic uh, group opens in your um, small towns parish, that's really going to change the face of Catholicism in that town. Um, right. Uh, really, very profoundly. Yeah, that's that's
1: an interest interesting phenomenon that's just going to continue to develop, isn't it? That's right.
0: Yeah. yeah, and it's one that the, you know, the Catholic Church from the on the level of the instru- institution um, is very supportive of. Um, mm. Um, as a way to challenge the um, uh, conversion to evangelical and Pentecostal. What are you working on next? Well, um, uh, Manuel and I, who um, wrote the book together, are he's he is involved in a in a big project um, looking at uh, this is very interesting. Um, looking at uh, immigrant groups in Florida uh, from Guatemala, Mexico, and Brazil, and having uh, scholars, researchers come from those countries to the United States to um, research among the immigrant groups. So again, uh-huh. having observed the phenomenon of transnationalism, uh-huh. uh, we want to also um, bring that uh, sort of phenomenon to the level or they decided to bring that phenomenon also to the level of the researchers themselves Mm -hmm. and have them move back and forth. And they did the research in Florida and found that one of the things they were most interested to look at was um, the interaction and the relationship between um, Latino immigrants and established groups in the United States, uh, uh, African American and and Anglo-established religious bodies. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next phase, they're considering moving um, up to Atlanta to um, look in a, in a more urban setting where there is a real juxtaposition of a broad range of, of um, immigrant groups with historically um, established groups and um, I'll be um, helping to organize uh, hmm. the beginnings of that process and to and to find places that these Latin American researchers can come and start to look at those sort of juxtapositions and interactions well, thank you so much. Um, it's this,
1: it's wonderful work, and uh, there's there's a lot here. I am going to interview Manuel tomorrow afternoon, or right. tomorrow morning, I think. And I and I don't know exactly know how we're going to produce this program, but um, you you've been in touch with Jody, right? And yes, she will let that's you right. know what's happening. And I and okay. I really appreciate your time and your work. Well, thank you. So thank, thank you so much. much. I enjoyed it. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.